Welcome to Hadar's Web, a podcast featuring community conversations on spirituality, healing, justice, and art. My name is Hadar Cohen. I am your host, and I am delighted to invite you to my relational web. Today's guest is Dahlia Omar Zada. Dahlia is a first-generation Kurd from Afrin, Kurdistan, and was raised in San Diego, Kumaye land. She is currently pursuing a PhD in social justice for education, researching how counter-narratives work to dismantle Orientalist, colonial, and reductive misconceptions of the Swana regions and individuals. She's also an analyst and researcher for an early childhood education nonprofit dedicated to equity and joy. Dahlia's work and passion live at the intersection of education, spirituality, story sharing, restorative justice, and advocacy, all of which are heavily inspired by her upbringing as a Kurdish Muslim woman. Welcome, Dahlia. So happy to have you on the podcast. Hi, Hadar. You made me sound so cool. You are cool. <laughs> you sound cool because you are cool. Thank you. I just want to say that our telepathy in these colors, I love. Yeah, we're, we're for the audio listeners, we're wearing burnt orange and we did not plan it. <laughs> yes, we match my couch. Yeah. Well, so the first question I like to ask people who come on the Hadar's Web podcast is how you know me because... Part of interviewing my friends, really, is about creating a web of relationships and relationality Mm -hmm. and modeling what conversations between friends can look like about spirituality and politics and justice and transformative education and all these things. So how do we know each other? You know, it's so funny. The other night when we were at your Shabbat dinner, one of your friends asked me, so how do you know Hadar? And it, like, took me a second because I honestly forgot, because it felt like I've known you forever and for many lifetimes. I know I've known you for a long time. Um, and it took me a second, and then it made, and then I had to think about it, and it was through Instagram. Like, people just kept sending me your profile and being like, you would be really good friends with this person. Like, you both have so much in common, and the most in common is we both talk a lot about transactional solidarity and then just feeling left out as ethnic minorities. Um, and just not having any issue calling people and swana out on that. And so I started following you and I was like, wow, this person is my twin spirit. And then we would like randomly message each other. And then we finally got to meet each other for the first time at your Hanukkah party, like one of your parties. And we hugged and it felt like I had hugged this person many times before. And then it's just grown since. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I actually remember before meeting you in person, you know, you would tag me on some things on social media, on your stories and different things. And I was like, wow, this person's analysis of social justice and spirituality is just so on point and so sharp. And sadly, it's just so rare Mm. to find because, you know, even on social media, sometimes someone follows you and you're like, I don't actually even know who this person is. But I felt like I was like, wow, Dahlia is really a person I want to get to know because I just felt like you had such a strong like sense of integrity and justice and yeah I'm really glad we met through that (laughs) I felt the same way about you yeah it was like we'd randomly repost each other and I'm like this girl's mind I love how she thinks so yeah I think we just clicked right away yeah 
And, you know, you do a lot of work around Kurdish, solidarity, Islam, and I just wanted to start off by asking you a bit about your identity, um, how you grew up, how you think of your identity as a Kurdish Muslim woman, yeah. as obviously a very core part of who you are and a channel through which you do so much of your work. But yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit to share about yeah. that. I mean, it's kind of a running joke with my friends and family where they're like, Dahlia will enter a room and not let anyone forget she's Kurdish. It's like, hi, my name is Dahlia and I'm Kurdish. <laughs> it's like, everyone has to know. And I think it's because I really credit it to my parents. I was raised being really proud of being Kurdish, but it wasn't always that way. Honestly, it wasn't until I was like 19 that I started to really unlearn the shame that I had been taught um, by society and school and the media of being Middle Eastern, being Muslim. Um, and so I feel like even to this day, many years later, I'm still trying to just get back that lost time of hiding in my K through 12 experience of just like hiding my identity, um, wanting to pass for white, wanting to be accepted by peers and teachers. And then in college, it was like, boom, I'm Kurdish and just being so loud and proud about it. I'm Muslim. And um, if you can't digest that, you can choke. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like that took a long time for me to get there. Um, I was raised with a mother who was very guided by her Muslim principles. Um, my dad is more Muslim by culture, and she's Muslim religiously. And so it was really interesting to have both of those kind of perspectives growing up. Um, my mom had a really interesting uh, childhood. Um, she grew up in Afrin in the summers in Kurdistan, and in the school year, she would be in Aleppo and Halab in Syria. And she actually grew up in a Jewish quarter. And so she grew up with Jewish neighbors. She grew up celebrating Hanukkah, Christmas, and Ramadan. And so she grew up like very interfaith um, upbringing. Um, and her parents were both very secular. She actually got much more religious um, at 13 when her father passed away. And her grandmother, who was a Muslim woman, had kind of like she dove into the, her grief through that. Um, but she grew up in a very secular neighborhood, secular parents. Um, she grew up, you know, reading the Torah, playing dreidel in the street with other kids. And so when I was growing up here in San Diego, she really wanted us to have that same kind of experience of like coexisting with pe the people of the book. Um, and so I grew up going to an Islamic school every Saturday. Um, and I hated that. Like from age three to 15, I wanted to be like a normal white American kid. I wanted Saturdays to be, you know, I want to have fun, I want to hang out with my friends, but I was in a mosque and I had to wear hijab. And I did not like that um, as a kid. And, oh, sorry, like it brings up so much, but um, yeah, so I grew up learning in the mosque, Islamic studies. And then at home, my mom also, I remember I have memories of like Christian people knocking on the door, you know, people go around on mission work and they like would they gave my mom a children's Bible once. And she is Muslim, but she let them into her home and she let them speak with her and they had this beautiful conversation. She's like, you know, I'm Muslim, I'm not converting, but I'll hear you out. Um, and I remember her handing me that book and her telling me, you can read this and I want you to tell me the similarities. So I read this beautiful Bible, it was like a children's Bible. Um, and I saw so many of the similarities of the stories of our prophets and so many similarities in Judaism too, which my mom also made us learn and read growing up. Um, and oftentimes when I was in trouble, because I was a very stubborn, rebellious kid, my mom would make me copy surahs out of the Quran. 
but she'd also make me write comparative essays on like the Torah, the Quran, and the Bible, and like all the biblical stories and compare and contrast. But she always wanted us to mostly focus on the comparisons. And she talked to us a lot about how um, a lot of times with Judaism and Islam and Christianity, there's so much division. But my mom grew up with Armenian, Jewish, like Christian. She grew up with so many people that she had always had that perspective of interfaith solidarity. And I'm so glad she passed that down to me. But as a kid, I hated it. I was like, why do I have to learn all this? Um, but now, as I make, you know, in the past few years, making so many diverse connections and friendships, I have, like, people feel so happy and proud when I can just, like, make connections to their religions. And they're like, how do you know this? And it's because of my mother. Um, so, yes, if that answered the question, yeah. I, I, I hope. <laughs> I love that. And it just reminds me of why I feel so connected to you because, you know, I also have, my grandparents are from Kurdistan as well, from Sakas and I grew up with so much shame about Kurdish identity, especially because I feel, you know, in Mizrahi, like Jewish Middle Eastern communities, there's hierarchies of like in the Middle Eastern world and Kurdish people are just always on the bottom. So I, I grew up with a lot of shame and I always actually would lie. And I would say, I'm Persian, I'm not Kurdish. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's really I sad. I used to tell people I was Egyptian because <laughs> he was Egyptian. cooler. <laughs> totally, yeah. Cause we like, wore all the, yeah, we all done that as kids from Swana. Yeah, and it actually wasn't until I moved to L.A. that I felt like I could really embrace my Kurdish roots mm-hmm. more. I actually remember with our mutual friend Maya, we were housemates, and I pulled her aside one time, and I was like, Maya, I have to tell you something that's really serious. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, she she was just like, what is it? I, like, pulled her to my room. I, like, made this whole setting. And I was like, I'm so scared. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was. And I was so nervous to share this part of me. But, like, actually, you know, she was the first person in my life that, like, had this more, like, celebration of Kurdish people. Mm-hmm. And just, like, the way that she honored and celebrated them, I was like, wow. Like, it made me feel like I could come into that part of my identity more. So I was like, my, I'm Kurdish. And she was like, that's great. <laughs> But then it was funny because then I felt like really LA like pointed me to so many beautiful Kurdish women like you who are so proud and it and made me feel like I even remember one time we were in your car and you put like this beautiful Kurdish music on and I was just like wow like I was just so struck by the beauty of it all um, and just so much sadness of how much mm-hmm. that shame can really suppress you from being connected to your lineage and understanding where you come from. And it's really, really intense. Um, and then also just wanted to share also, you know, of your, your mom's experience in Halab, which my family also happens to be from. So I'm like, okay, we have We're all this connection. <laughs> totally. But, you know, I think that it is really um, hard sometimes because, you know, a lot of my work is about Jewish identity in the Middle East um, and, um, our belonging to the land and to the region and um, that's a very divisive thing <laughs> as we have experienced together but um, you know I do feel that the truth of our region the truth of the land is this multi-religious spirit you know like it's not just one identity it's not just one thing it's actually multiple multiple identities multiple traditions multiple religions and that's what makes it so rich and so beautiful um, and, you know, part of so much of, I think, both of our activism is to, is to revive that, which is 
why it's so fitting that you came to my Hanukkah party in the beginning because it is it's like you know that's how I also grew up with my grandma it's like our Jewish holidays are not just meant for us to celebrate on our own but it's like we invite our neighbors we invite our community it's like you know and this multi-religious spirit is something so so strong yeah yeah Sorry, I'm, just, I'm still sitting with a lot of what you had said, and it made me realize that I think we got so close so fast because we went through so much trauma together in these past few months of like being Kurdish and Jewish in spaces that did not support our identities, but also in our previous lifetimes too. And like that's why we were able to just like, I see you. Yeah. Um, I see your pain. I understand, and we both are from groups of people where we are not wanted in diaspora, and we are not wanted back home. Like, we yeah. are persecuted everywhere we go. And then for you, I remember when you shared with me that you had a Kurdish grandmother, I instantly got goosebumps. I was like, wow, this woman is like the perfect liaison for Swana. You are Jewish, you are Kurdish, you are Arab, like you are a woman. Like, you hold so many identities that are so powerful and so like ancestrally so powerful and just full of so much wisdom and mysticism and indigenous knowledge too um and so that's why when you you speak truth and a lot of what you say like just resonates with me so well and I feel like it's just conversations we've continued for many lifetimes as cheesy as that is definitely yeah. I feel that too and and yeah I mean I think that persecution as you said both in the homelands and also in the diaspora is so intense because that that quest to erase yeah. I mean especially Kurdish folks it's just it's really hardcore it's really intense um, and yeah. many people don't even know about that you know yeah. and even recently with you know the most recent revolution happening in Iran it's like completely wiping out Kurdish activism so yeah just wanted to invite you to if you wanted to just speak a little bit more about that because I know yeah. we've been in spaces together especially about um going to support you know the revolution in iran and just how it's just assumed that it's persians leading when there's really also kurdish people on the ground who are leading the revolution yeah and you're from sekes which true. is like the heart of the revolution in rojalat which is the part of kurdistan occupied by iran um which is where i believe jinnah amini is from too and what people know her as mahsa amini because even in her death she's not allowed to be kurdish and there's so much trauma and it's so triggering for us Kurds with the recent Iranian revolution spurring up again because, again, Kurds are pushed off to the side even though it's happening in Kurdish cities. The Kurds are taking the brunt. The Kurds are leading the way. I have a lot of amazing Iranian allies and friends who will tell me, like, without Kurds, this wouldn't continue going. Like, Kurds are taking it on and they've always led. Um, and so... Yeah, I, I, I feel like a lot of times Kurds were just used as pawns by people in Swana and by the U.S. And then we're all just kind of stabbed in the back and we're used for our resistance and our fighting and our passion. And then it's just we're on our own. And that's why that proverb, um, it's the most popular one, sadly, uh, which means like Kurds have no friends but the mountains. Mm. And I grew up being told this by my parents all the time. And as a child, that's deeply depressing. And it's you form your identity from childhood on to just knowing that your people are persecuted, you do not matter, looking through textbooks of halabja, genocides as a child, and just knowing my people are not treated like people 
is deeply damaging to the, the psyche and you grow up not feeling proud or safe. And my parents always instilled so much proudness in me for being Kurdish, so they never understood really why I was lying about my identity in middle school and high school because they didn't understand that growing going in a white, like white dominant school system, it was just safer for me, especially post 9-11, which is a whole other conversation. But like we were the only Muslim family in my elementary school. Um, one of the only like very few in middle school and high school. And we I was the only Kurdish person slash our family was the only Kurds at our kindergarten, middle school, high school and college. Wow. And so people don't realize like the power of community of just like being able to go to a club and see other people who look like you. Me going to MSA, like Muslim Student Associations, where they're like, um, uh, our brothers and sisters, everyone's invited. And then you go and it's very pan-Arabism, like very Arab-centric. Um, and then if you dare to speak up for anyone who's not a Sunni Arab, like you're shamed and you're accused of being divisive for simply just pointing out injustice. Um, and so I never felt safe in Swana or Muslim spaces either. Um, and so it was just easier to hide until I was like 19 or 20. And then it was me being obnoxious about it. Like I'm Kurdish. And if you have a problem with that, we can't be friends. And so I lost a lot of friends. Um, but you know, it's with, I've always found with Jewish and Afghan and Armenian folks, like other people who can identify with being ethnic minorities, who can identify with being left out of the ummah. Um, I always feel safer in those spaces because we connect in that way of just knowing like they're not, a lot of them aren't going to speak out for us. So we got to have each other's backs and like kind of unlearning that whole Kurds only have friends in the mountains. Yes, the mountains are our greatest friends, but I think it's really important to spread out to other mountains too. Mm. And so you're a mountain to me as well. Um, and just knowing that like a lot of Kurds, who are Jewish, who were expelled from Kurdistan and Iraq and Syria and Iran, and like they have nowhere to go, and then wherever they end up going, they're also persecuted there too. Um, that's why I'm able to really easily empathize with, with you and a lot of my Jewish community, friends and family. Yeah, and you know, I think something a lot of people don't really realize is that Kurds really get it from all angles. Yeah. It's not just like one country that's trying to displace them, but it's like four. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and you know that Kurds don't get to have just the rights to their land and to their space because um, there's so many occupations. <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of people in the Middle East are, or Swano regions are afraid to use the word occupation for Kurds, and it's true. We're, in, on, we're occupied by four countries, but nobody wants to un say that Turkey's an occupier state or Iran or Iraq or, or Syria. <laughs> That was turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Something just fell I'm over. I'm telling you, all sides. <laughs> that was <really> so <laughs> Something just fell over in the balcony. Um, it was the wind. Um, but yeah, it's like a lot of times in the Middle East, people have no problem calling out certain occupier states, calling out injustice. But when it's time to call out Kurds and you know the people occupying Kurds and Yazidis and Assyrians, they're really quiet because we don't fit the bill. Yeah, and I think that's something we've also experienced together, you know, because there's so much to say specifically about Palestinian and Kurdish solidarity. Yeah. Because in some ways they're both fighting occupying powers through resistance and through all these things. But a lot of times it's like the Arab nationalist struggle kind of gets in the way. Yeah. And um, doesn't allow for that solidarity 
to take place. And yeah, wondering if you could speak a little bit to some of that experience around yeah. Palestinian Kurdish, because I know that's something also that you're, um, I mean, we're here with a, with a sign that says decolonization is not a metaphor. Yeah, Palestine, Kurdistan, Artsakh, I have that poster there. So when people walk in my, and it was made by Ali at Entangled Roots Press, they're great. Um, when they walk in my house, they know what I'm about. Um, I truly believe that just as all, is our, of all of our oppression is intertwined, so is our liberation. And so when people condemn Israel, but they don't condemn Turkey, um, that, that confuses me. Because <laughs> I'm like, you know, they're selling arms to each other. They're all, they're, like, the poli they're all working together to oppress us. But they use and they employ these divide and conquer tactics, so we stay angry with each other, not with them. And so a lot of, it's interesting because the mosque I grew up going to was predominantly Palestinian and Jordanian and Syrian. So I grew up with a lot of Palestinian friends. And I always felt like they were my sisters growing up. But then around college, when I'd be posting things about Kurdistan and like Turkey occupying us, a lot of my Palestinian friends were quiet because they had like a better view on Turkey. Like they could not, they liked Turkey. They were like, oh, I go to Turkey instead of Palestine because I can go to Turkey and it feels like home. And some of them, when I tried explaining to them about how Erdogan, you know, oppresses Kurds and we're going through a lot of the same struggles as them, a lot of them would take the energy and time to speak to their parents and say, you know, we're not going to vacation in Turkey. Erdogan is, you know, it's a lot like Netanyahu. We're not doing that. And then others just told me that I was being divisive and that um, I was turning my back on the Ummah mm. and that I need to put being Muslim before Kurdish. I need to put Islam first, which I can't do. <laughs> And so I have seen my share of, like, I have a lot of Palestinian friends and allies who truly believe Kurdistan and Palestine are connected, which they are. I have a friend, actually, who's doing this amazing thesis um, exploring how Kurdish and Palestinian farmers are going through, like, a lot of the same struggle, and their connection to the indigenous land is very similar. Um, and then I have other Palestinian friends and, uh, who stopped being my friend because I would just simply point out the fact that Erdogan created settlements in my home of Afrin. There are Palestinian families settled in our homes, in our lands. And even as I say this on your podcast, I'm nervous because it's like this is a lot of times I feel like you can't touch Palestine. Like when you say Oof, about Palestine and any Swana convo, people get really upset and defensive. And what they don't understand is I love and support a free Palestine till the day I die, just as I support a free Kurdistan. But I need people to start thinking critically. I need them to start think this, knowing that solidarity isn't transactional. And if we're going to condemn Israel, we're going to condemn Turkey. And we're going to fight together. Um, and we're going to also recognize that I think this is the hardest pill for a lot of Swana people to swallow. Every single group in Swana has been victim or oppressor at one point. There is no yeah. true victim. And I even, growing up, was always taught Kurds were victims, Kurds were victims. And then I had to learn how there were Kurds who have also aided in the harm of Assyrians or Armenians. And, you know, and, and like that hurt for me to learn. But, you know, it's taking accountability and it's changing those cycles. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like there are saying something like there are Palestinian settlers in Afrin right now. There are settlers who go to Syria, to Kurdistan, knowing that Erdogan will give them home, kicking Kurds out of their home and indigenous lands while also condemning Israel for doing it. And it's like, we need to condemn both. <laughs> yeah. We need to condemn and fight for both. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of known for saying what it is, even if it's uncomfortable, and I'm okay losing friends for, for that. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of your biggest strengths is your bravery and your courage around speaking that truth. And, you know, I think, you know, when people talk about, and this is such a big part of my work, you know, speaking about Arab Jews or Middle Eastern Jews, because when we're talking about that, it means that we have to kind of expand our understanding of Palestine, not just to Palestine itself, but to the whole region. Yes. And I actually don't really understand how we can talk about Palestine without the whole region, yeah. you know, because there are similar patterns happening. Um, and the more that we understand that and the more that we um, develop like a better political analysis instead of, you know, something that happens a lot in both of our communities is just, you know, the, the trauma and the projections and yeah. the emotional charge that doesn't allow people to see clearly or as you said so beautifully it's like you know where so many people are navigating this double-edged sword of like being a victim and also being part of oppressors like and, and you know certainly with Arab Jews you could say we're also right yes. we're constantly navigating this like being a victim and being a perpetrator and where's our place being and forced perpetrators yeah totally like how do we and yeah. so many you know so many people in the swana communities especially kind of more mediary groups are be are used to yeah. be perpetrators by the empires and um it's a really complex conversation to have <laughs> yeah it's like so many kurds and jews have been forced put into places like used as pawns forced oppressors and you know like with the example of the armenian genocide a few tribes kurdish tribes that did uh, participate a lot of them was forced a lot of them I'm sure was chosen but a lot of them were forced it was like if you don't do this we're gonna kill you yeah and I think a lot of people and like even with the Palestinian families who have settled in Afrin a part of me is sad for them because I'm like they have been kicked out of their homes and they have nowhere to go um, and like yes they are displacing other people finding a new home but I have also heard of the stories where a lot of Palestinian families, they come to Afrin and they realize they're being, they're displacing other people and they're like, no, I'm not doing that. Like, that just happened to me. And then Turkish jihadists are like, yes, you are. We're going to kill you. And they're being used to change the demographic. And so I know these nuanced parts. Like, I know yeah. some of them are taking advantage and coming. Some of them are really just, until you're at that point, I think we're so privileged sitting here in the West and talking about what's going on over there. Until you're at that point where you are literally protecting your family, being threatened, people will do anything. To survive yeah. and it's and it sucks um but that's just the reality we're faced with and so many swana groups are faced with so many jews who were expelled from iraq and syria my mom the quarter she grew up in in syria she said it completely changed when so many of them were expelled during her time in halab and um the neighborhood changed it lost its charm it lost its love it lost its joy and she always wondered where did they go mm. and so when people are forced into a new place um and they are moved there's only so much, I don't know, it's so nuanced, it's, it's so sad, and it's like, you know, the, I always hear the Jewish question, the Kurdish question, the Kurdish yeah. problem, what do we do with all these Kurds, what do we do with all these Jews, like, we just, you know, and it's, that's where I see a lot of the similarities, yeah. and then when you're a Kurdish Jew, <laughs> you're just screwed on all, on all angles, like, you know, religiously, culturally, ethnically, um, so yeah, I think that when we are brave, and when we lean into brave spaces and we have these conversations where we take ac accountability and we break generational cycles and we refuse the divide and conquer tactics, that's when we form these really beautiful spaces of solidarity. Yeah. Unfortunately, as you and I have learned, a lot of people know how to use the buzzwords. They're like, oh, solidarity, intersectionality. And then when it comes down to practice it, they fail because yeah. they don't know what that really looks like. And then we are the learning 
like guinea pigs from that. Yeah, the scapegoats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, because it's very nice and very easy to say words. It's, it's very easy to say I care about justice, but mm -hmm. your ways of being, you know, I think, and I think that's the thing that I've kind of learned through my life of participating in justice struggles is that, you know, it can, standing up for your own people, like, that's one thing. It's very easy. It's very easy. You should do that. Yeah, long. that's like your responsibility, <laughs> you know, stand up for your people, your family, your identity. But the second you learn about someone else's struggles that's not yours and you still commit to showing up, I think yeah. that's the beginning signs that you're actually committed to justice work. Yeah. And when you're able to do that with like two or more struggles that are not yours, that's like when you're like, and you know, this is where people have a really hard time understanding the intersectionality of all of these things. And specifically, you know, me and you have been, um, working together and hopefully we're going to launch a course together around the intersections of anti-semitism and islamophobia yeah. um, because specifically jewish and muslim communities you know especially in the swana region but not just have, there's there's constantly this like pitting us against each other as opposed to understanding the larger dynamics of colonization and you know white supremacy um and and it's really upsetting. And then, and then, you know, something that I've kind of witnessed both with Jewish and Muslim communities, it's like, it's really sad when there's like Islamophobia that comes from the Jewish community or then the anti-Semitism that comes from the Muslim community because we're like, what are we doing here? Yes. You know, and, and I'm recalling that I remember when you were talking about, you know, we were invited to a university to... <laughs> For those of you who know, know. <laughs> to talk about, um, yeah, to talk about all of this work that we're doing and... You know, I was experiencing some anti-Semitism from the students and Dahlia defended me so hardcore. I was like, what? that was actually the first time I was defended for anti-Semitism in like a swan space. So first of all, I just want to say really thank you because I don't really experience people being a, defending Jewish people because stuff, you know, they're like, oh, well, they're complicit in the state of Israel or they st start finding all these excuses for anti-Semitism without really, it's like, well, why can't we talk about what happened in Iraq or in Syria or in Egypt? Like what, you know, this is just Jewish history of these lands. And, you know, sometimes people have, they don't really want to acknowledge um, both the Islamification of the region and the Arabization in the region and how harmful that was, not just to Jews, you know, and I think through my learning in my education, one of the things that I've come across is that, you know, anti-Semitism in the Swana community was always connected towards oppression of other ethnic minorities as well. It wasn't, it was never just like, oh, just the Jews, because it had to do actually with other minorities as well. Um, but, but anyways, I'm just remembering that story where you said where when you were experiencing anti-Semitism because of your nose, <laughs> <laughs> which just goes to show how related Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is, because sometimes people can't really differentiate between. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because it's like, I, as a Muslim woman, have experienced Islamophobia and anti-Semitism because uh, I guess I'm Jewish passing, whatever that means. A lot of people are like, oh, like you're, you're, you look Jewish. Your name is Dahlia. That's a Hebrew name. I'm like, it's also an Arab name. It's a Kurdish name, but whatever. Um, and you have a big nose. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, a lot of people from Swana have beautiful, <laughs> strong noses that I've also had to learn to love and unlearn the... That's a whole other conversation. But... Um, I remember that workshop you're talking about, um, Hadar was talking about how like Jewish and Palestinian liberation is intertwined 
And this Palestinian student, she was uh, wearing a hijab, and she just stood up and was like yelling, being very rude and just not letting her speak. And like, it wasn't a very academic space. Like all her pain and trauma is valid. The things she could have said, you know, she could have expressed it in a better way, but she was sabotaging the workshop at that point. And um, the organizers weren't doing anything about it. So I had to stand into that space. And something that really upset her was because she knew I was Muslim and a lot of people in the room knew I was Muslim. They were confused. Like, why is this Muslim person standing up against their Muslim sisters? Um, because here's the thing, like I am so Muslim and I am so passionate about my religion that standing up for other people's religions is no problem for me. It actually makes my, my Islam stronger because the Muslim, the Islam I grew up with, the Islam my beautiful mother taught me was that your Islam is stronger when you support other people's religions, no matter what it is. And when you stand up for others, and that's what our beloved prophet always told us, you just respect and you love the other people of the book. And so I was just practicing what I feel like anybody should do. And when I looked around the room and there was no one and they were all just kind of sitting down and awkward and uncomfortable, and I was feeling this rage, like I was sweating and I felt so hot in my body because Jewish or Muslim, take that out. It was like watching you be attacked for who you are. And no matter what you said, it did not matter. They were there because they were being anti-Semitic. That's a fact. Like they were there from the get-go. They entered that room. They didn't even hear what you were saying. And it would have been really beautiful if they did because you had so much beautiful things about Palestine, which was ironic. They were there to hate. They were there to be upset. They were there. Their trauma was there. Their anger was there. Their ancestral whatever was there. Um, and so for me, it wasn't necessarily Muslim Jewish. It was just like you as a person feeling to need everyone having the right and being entitled to just feeling safe. Yeah. Um, and it really upset me when afterwards, when you were like, I've never had someone stand up for me like that before. That was bare minimum to me. And then I ended up actually getting kicked out of that conference. <laughs> like I was a keynote speaker and I was supposed to wrap up the whole conference. They used my humans, Aswana stories, everything. And they kicked me out for standing up for Hadar. Um, and I was proud of myself. Like I was more proud of myself for getting kicked out than for getting invited. And something you said earlier where you were saying, you know, if you're not standing up for other people, your solidarity doesn't, like your buzzwords don't matter. I even said it in that speech before your workshop. I was saying that um, if your own people, if there aren't people in your own community who do not agree with you, who do not like you, then you're not doing, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Like I've had Kurds tell me, why are you speaking up for Palestinians? They have statues of Saddam Hussein in their country. Why are you speaking up for blah, blah, blah? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And it's like my passion and my love and my strength and my Kurdish culture and my Islamic roots and religion is so strong that there is more than enough room for other people. Yeah. And that's the, that's in the lens of which I operate from. And I love that because I think that, you know, and this is something that's sometimes hard to know the right language of how to say, speak about these things because to me, justice is really about that. You yeah. know, take away all the analysis, all of this, just in the moment, you have a clear analysis of what's happening. You can see when someone's being attacked and you can stand up to, you know, but, but I think that one of the dynamics we have today that in justice spaces, it's actually still ruled so much by fear. Yes. There's so much fear around being the only one speaking out, being that, you know, like, and, and people are really, you know, governed by, in some ways, people pleasing. Yes. than the truth 
right? They just want to be liked. They want to follow the community. They want to follow the norm. Oh, now this is a hashtag. Now let me make this a t-shirt. Let me be cool. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, which that, there's nothing wrong with that. These are human things, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's complex when it diverts, you know, the actual truthful nature of justice work, which is right. about being able to just see clearly and, and naming that. Um, yeah. Using your privilege. And using like, your privilege. Like if you're not putting your body, like I literally put, I physically blocked you from people who were tr who were standing up and yelling at you. Yeah. If you're not putting your body on the line, don't claim to be a solidarity activist or advocate or whatever. Just like know where you're at and be honest with yourself. Um, because unless you're really ready, like for me, I have so many privilege in being white passing, whatever that means in America. Because when I'm in Europe, people look at me and they know I'm Middle Eastern right away because they're used to being other around Middle Eastern people. Yeah. Yeah, but here in the U.S., they don't even know what Middle Eastern people look like. <laughs> they know dog breeds better than um, brown people. But um, the point is, oh like, God. I still have a lot of privilege in being white, like having white skin, not wearing hijab. I don't wear my religion every day. Um, you know, being a U.S. citizen, speaking English, being college educated, there are so many privileges you do have, and there's so much power you do hold. And I think a lot of Swana people focus so much on the victim mentality and the power they don't have. And it's like, yes, and like, yes, we should talk about our oppression and how it makes our lives harder in some ways in diaspora. Again, another privilege. I'm in diaspora. I'm not navigating my Kurdish identity in a war zone. And yeah. so one of the biggest things I also notice that's so obnoxious in the West is like Swana people with good intentions, but like telling people in their regions how to think and feel. And it's like you're in diaspora, you're sitting in privilege and you're telling our people who are in the war zone or in the unsafe space or in the home or whatever, how, what they should be doing. Like, that's just ridiculous to me. It's all about meeting people where they're at, meeting yourself where you're at. Like, you don't go talking about solidarity and standing up for people and, like, intersectional feminism where, when it comes down to it, you're quiet. Totally. Because I, I, I stopped being disappointed and I started lowering expectations for a lot of people in my life who I thought would show up for me in some spaces and then they failed to. And it made me, like, as I grow older, you're definitely one of the rare, it's actually very rare, sadly, rare people I know who will actually do that, who will use their voice or their body to speak up and not be afraid of being cast out or alone. And that actually reminds me of when that happened to us and the director kept saying, we're so sorry this happened to you guys. And what broke my heart was hearing each other say, we're used to it. And it's like, you and I have nothing to lose. Like, we've already mm -hmm. lost our homelands. We've already lost so much that me standing up for someone is like what's what is there to lose and i think that's what makes kurds like the true anti-fascist anti like state anti like we have nothing to lose like we aren't fighting for borders anymore like we yeah. aren't fighting for like like a, a fake sharpie line like we are just fighting for like the right to live yeah so, sorry for my tangent but. no it's a, a welcome tangent and you know what you're saying also about um in that conference and how some of the Muslim students were so shocked that you as a Muslim woman would be defending a Jewish woman because that's in some ways going against Islam because you're not. But, you know, it, just from, you know, my own research and my own work around Arab Jews, it's something that I've come across too where it's just, you know, when, when Arab Jews were being expelled from all over the region, there were Muslims who did actually put their bodies on the line. Yeah. I mean, especially in the Farhud in Iraq, there many Muslims who died defending Jewish people yes. and you know and and I think that's also something sometimes 
in my community that's upsetting is that sometimes in the Jewish space is kind of like a just speaking of all Muslims as like one like especially in the Arab Jewish community it's like we're so traumatized that we're just like cannot see clearly and we're just like oh Muslims this or Muslims that but it's just like there was this division around especially about relationship with Jews you know yeah. like there was such a deep solidarity between Jews and Muslims and there was that commitment towards safety with each other and unfortunately there was also like fascism that was rising and nationalism and you know all yeah. these other and Zionism and all these other forms um, that ended up rupturing and, and, and ended up spewing a lot of anti-Semitism that is part of what caused the situation that we're in now today. Um, but, you know, that was so comforting for me because growing up, I was like, I know that these Muslims from the region are still out there, <laughs> you know, the ones who can still do care about Jewish yes. people and Jewish lives and like, do still feel that solidarity and that connection so and there are jews who do that for muslims and it's like honestly um jews and muslims used to live side by side so like coexistence was just normal like it was like people just let people worship what they wanted you know islam and jews like muslims and jews they are not going around on mission trips they are not a religion of conversions like yeah. they're not going around forced converting people and all that um unless it's you know unless when they that's a whole thing. <laughs> like, okay, going into that, my family, so Islam is also like a complicated thing for me because just as I grew, as I grew older, I started learning Kurdish accountability and the things we did perpetrate, 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 however you say it, English language yeah. learner. Um, <laughs> Muslims did the same. And so knowing that my mother's side is only like fifth generation Muslim, like she, her family was converted five generations back knowing that she's um, half Yazidi, uh, knowing that my that all Kurdish people, Islam was very much forced. Some Muslims chose, some Kurds chose it, some did not. It was very much convert or die, assimilation or annihilation. Um, and so, but I do like see Kurds are really, really good at staying true to our roots in Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. as well though. Like, yes, we are Muslim, but for a lot of Kurds, I see so many Kurds put Kurdish first. Like you're Kurdish Muslim. Like it's like we've, made Islam kind of mold to Kurdish identity, where it's like, yes, I'm, I'm Muslim, and I love my religion. I also have a complex relationship with my religion, knowing that it was forced on my people, um, generally. Sure, thank you for sharing all that. I wanted to kind of, um, you know, we've been talking about all this history of oppression and also presence of oppression and all of these things, and I think one thing me and you also have in common is that we are both very spiritual yes and our, our spirituality and our religion and our practice of um our relationship to our religion really grounds us in this work and you know yeah it's like you're muslim i'm jewish but i actually feel like we have a very similar relationship to spirituality and i think just as you know anti-semitism and islamophobia are connected jewish mysticism and islamic mysticism are very connected as well i mean even just the language itself you know arabic and hebrew yeah, share the sisters literally semitic roots and something you know i've been teaching about high holiday liturgy recently and i always joke that jews um high holidays is a time that jews are muslim <laughs> because <laughs> we, we prostrate a lot during that time yom kippur we have five prayers um, a lot, the big theme that we say in the High Holiday Liturgy is the prayer of El Rachum V'Chanun, mm. which is, you know, the God that is the most merciful and compassionate, which is very similar to the Bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim. It's the yes. same roots. 
So it's like, which, you know, in Islam, that's concept of mercy of God as a merciful one is like so core and so important. So it's just been really interesting as I've kind of been diving into high holiday liturgy and teaching about the merciful God and the forgiving God. Um, it just, it, I'm always seeing these really beautiful connections between Judaism and Islam. And um, yeah, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your relationship to Islam and to Sufism and to yeah. mysticism. I love this question because it brings us back to what's important. We can talk about states. We can talk about Kurdistan and Israel and Palestine and whatever. Border states drawn with Sharpies. But I'm more interested in talking about what predates that and existed way longer than the names we just put on maps and that, or not us, really, the British and the French. Um, it's the religion. Like, Judaism exists beyond that state. Like, Judaism has existed way longer than that, and so has Islam, like, before borders really mattered as much. And so when I think about the way I was raised, where Judaism and Christianity and Islam are like this. And my mom always told me that Islam comes from Judaism. Without Judaism, there's no Islam. Like she always said, to honor Judaism for being that foundation to Christianity and Islam being last and being, excuse me, <laughs> I got so excited. <laughs> um, Islam being like kind of like a final edition or like a, like, you know, like a, a third edition of Judaism. That's what I was always taught. And, um, I don't know, my brain just like farted for a second. What was your main question? <laughs> I was asking <laughs> I <got> about so <laughs> I was asking about your connection to Islam yes. and to Sufism and to Yeah, so being Kurdish, being a secular, where we can we consider ourselves a very secular people. Um, my mom grew up with religion, all our different religions around her, and so did I. And so my roots in Islam, I think the part of Islam that I love the most and why we we connect so well is the mysticism. And I actually had a really dear friend, she's Armenian, and she asked me over dinner the other day, she was like, Dahlia, why is it that like Muslims and like Kurdish women especially have been able to hold on to like this mystic spirit and like Christians have just lost their mysticism? Like she even, and she as a Christian said this, she's like, it just makes me really sad, especially in as Armenian, knowing our roots in Zoroastrianism as well. Like we like completely abandoned it where I see like Kurds and even non-Kurds, just like Muslims in general have like mystic, like a mystic quality to their religion. And why is that? And it was like really interesting because I, it's like the same with Judaism and Islam. Like the mysticism we've held onto um, so much stronger and strongly. And I think it's because we've had more of a reason to. Mm. I feel like a lot of times in times of like hopelessness and in times of persecution, we hold on to the properties of religion that have existed before the religion, if mm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like being indigenous people, that mysticism was always there. And then like Islam is like a whole different type of mysticism, if that makes any sense. Um, but yeah, like I grew up being aware of other spirits and jinn and like coexisting with the many spirits that are around me all the time. And like my mom did this really beautiful mixture raising me of like, religion and mysticism like the power of the things we just can't really explain like the things we just feel um and so and also having a sufist family member and like being told like i remember as a kid when my mom showed me on my hands if you've ever been told like the one eight eight one in arabic on our hands like wahid. oh wow i've never known that temenya temenya so it's like Temenya, Wahed Temenya, Wahed Temenya. I don't know. I don't know how to say 18 and 81 in Arabic. I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, if you add them together, it makes 99. And as you know, there wow. are 99 names of Allah. 
Um, and so eight, 81 and 18 make 99. Wait, hold on, hold on. Where are you getting the 81 and where Here's are you getting the 18? Oh my one, God. Eight. And so I remember my mom showing me this wow. as a kid and telling me, God is in you all the time. Mm. And like some Muslims might say that's sacrilegious to say that God is in a human. But my mom's mystic heart and like the Islam, like what wow. she grew up with, like even when you put your hands in prayer, God is there. That's and a lot of the Sufist teachings is like we are an extension of God because we are his creation and we are his divine creation. Some Sunni Muslims might say that's sacrilegious. That's fine. It's whatever you want to interpret it as. But I really do mm. believe I'm an extension of God. And when I look down at my hands and I see God, 99 names. And I actually have Rahma tattoo because when that. you were talking about mercy, um, I was thinking about my favorite part of the religion is the mercy and Judaism talks a lot about being merciful and so I have this to remind me that to be merciful to others God's mercy um I got it after a, a really horrific part of my life where I almost died and I actually got in a horrible car accident on Mercy Road Whoa. and like totaled my truck concussion like paramedics and cops were like we don't know how you're not dead blah 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 and I saw Mercy Road and I just broke down in tears and I was like that's God like, mm -hmm. God showed me so much mercy, and so I got this shortly after. And I remember my mom asking me, like, why would you want to remind yourself of something so sad and horrific? Like, let's just get over it. And I thought, no, like, God God did that to me. That's a gift. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I started to, again, shift that victim mentality of, like, instead of saying, why me? This was the worst time for this to happen. I'm in school. I'm working, whatever. Instead of saying, why me? I started asking myself, why not me? And, like, that... that that Muslim belief that God chooses you for certain things very specifically at specific times, he showed me in such a physical, powerful way, you're, you still got things to do, girl. Mm. Like, you still got things to do because when I'm struggling with depression and I'm feeling hopeless and I'm thinking, you know, why am I even here? What is even the point? And then God does this to me and I survive. It's like a, such a physical, sharp reminder that, like, people die in car accidents every day. I'm not special. I'm just another human being. I am not special. But there is a reason. Every time I even question God's belief in me or my purpose here in this world, I remember that I got a second chance that not a lot of people get. And that's on God's mercy. Hmm. And so just practicing mercy to other people all the time, giving people second chances, um, not holding grudges. And so I don't know if that's connected to your question, but like I think that my, not just being Muslim, but also like growing up with a mystical Islam, of like, you know, you also being kind of powerful and divine in your own way um, is really what guides me in my, and how I've become, I've had such a beautiful relationship with Islam was when I started to make it more about me. Like, I don't want to sound self-centered, but it's like molding Islam to me instead of molding me to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And, you know, also this word of mercy mm -hmm. in Hebrew and Arabic, it comes from a, a similar... Um, line which is rechem mm. which means womb which i think yes. about the feminine aspect yes. of that energy right mm. of like the mercy god's the mercy towards us is this femininity that and that's the power and the strength of it um you know and especially in the beginning when you're talking about your mom and you know especially i mean kurdish women in general but just i feel like just that strength and that femininity and yes. and um 
Yeah, so it, it just felt like it was bringing it all home for me. <laughs> yeah, like I, I grew up in a very matriarchal home. Yeah. I grew up knowing women are powerful. Like the divine feminine, I never heard that word growing up, but I felt it all the time. And so when I started to really study it later in my life, I was like, oh, this is my mother. This yeah. is my grandmother. This is me. Um, this is God. And so like my mother, her great, her grandmother was a very powerful woman. Like people in Afrin and all over Kurdistan and Syria would come see her um, because she was a truth seer and a mm. truth speaker. She was a medium. She could connect people with spirits and the dead and the, and the living in different ways too. She could heal people. And she had this like, she was this Kurdish woman. So she had the power in the Zoroastrianism, the Yazidi, the, 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 the powerful roots she carried in her ethnicity and her DNA and her genetic makeup. And then being practicing Islam and Sufism as well was like what made her double, double powerful. And like to this day in the home that my mom's ancestral home that they've had for hundreds of years, there is a, like a room with her like book and cane that they've left untouched and people will still come and pray there wow. and like just still seek her guidance even in her death. That's um, and she, you know, she never acted um, like anything less than just God's vessel. And, like, that's another thing my mom always taught me. Like, I really am so grateful for my mom. I go more and more grateful with for her every day because she always, now I look back and see the, the, the mysticism intertwined in the Islamic teachings she did with us. Like, for example, telling me that this body is something I'm just borrowing. It's mm -hmm. like I'm just a physical vessel and it's my spirit that will go on and move on. It's my spirit that loved her in a different capacity in a different lifetime and will find her again in a different lifetime. I was raised with that. I love that. And That's so I beautiful. was raised with, you know, Islam and our general idea of the afterlife, heaven and hell and whatever. But I was also raised with this beautiful idea of reincarnation mm. and like us, our spirit living and her telling me, you know, we never die. And I actually had a really depressing and beautiful convo with her the other day where she flat out asked me, are you afraid to die? And I said, no but I'm afraid of you dying. I'm <laughs> oh. afraid of losing people. Wow. I'm afraid of grief. Yeah, yeah. I'm not afraid to die. And she said, I'm not afraid to die because death is where home is. Wow. And she said, death is where my mom and my sister and my brother and everyone I've ever loved, my father, death, death is um, reunion. Mm. Wow, and that I line. literally got goosebumps and I started tearing up. I was like, this woman is so divine. Like, she's so beautiful. She's so powerful. And, like... To have her on the podcast. <laughs> I know. And, um, yeah. And, like, that just comforted my heart. And, like, I'm always so worried about her. But when she said that and seeing her peace in that and seeing, like... That's an example of her being such a devout Muslim and, like, mm. trusting in Allah and knowing her death, like, will... Um, I hate even talking about it. But it's, like, knowing that she'll be okay and that there is something after. And it's not just, like, heaven. It's, like... Yeah reunion and it's it's mystical and it's something that like we won't even really know until you're there and so yeah I love being able to have those conversations with her and I think it's because of her unique upbringing and like being around so many religions being around so many mystical belief systems and then herself like my mom tells people namaste like she is so cute like she's listening to buddhist teachings and she is so muslim and she still will say oh buddhism is beautiful and, um, and, like, sometimes her friends will even shame her for that. They're like, oh, wow, like, you're, like, listening to things that aren't. And she's like, yes, I'm so Muslim that I have room to hear and respect and understand and even adopt some little things, like, yeah. you know, and see the connections. 
you know, because I think that's such a powerful place to be in your faith because yeah. a lot of times people don't learn about other religions because they're threatened by them. Yeah. They're like, oh, what if I hear some, you know, but if you actually feel very grounded in your own religion. You're secure. You're secure. Yeah. You don't feel threatened by hearing. It just enhances yes. your practice. And I certainly feel that way because I also very deep into multi-religious study as yeah. well. No, I was always told by mom, my mom, if you can't find halal, go kosher. If you can't find a mosque, find a temple. You know, I was always yeah. taught that Judaism was a safe space. Judaism was the, if, like, if I didn't feel safe in an, another country, or if I needed a place to pray, or if I needed a community, you find a temple. Mm. You find kosher food. <laughs> and so that's what I was always raised with. Yeah. Um, and I, can t I very much intend on passing down her matriarchal um, belief systems and, like, just passing that down to my, if I ever have my own children, whatever family system I have, I do want to carry on a lot of those beliefs and those values. That's I think it's beautiful. important. And I think when you have a secure attachment with your spirituality and your religion, um, no other should be a threat to you. That's yeah. why when I see people being like super ridiculous or just insecure or like just flat out offensive um, and they're just like shoving their religion or their values or culture down your throat, um, it's because they need God the most. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? It's from that place of lack that then we have yes. to fill it up with all these other things. And yeah, that's beautiful because the more trust you have in God, the more faith you have in God, the more security yes. you have in this lifetime and in the next. So yeah. thank you so much, Dahlia. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to still talk about or you want to make sure know. to name? I feel like just... I just want to name, like, diversify your friend group. Mm. Like, if you're hanging out with people that are your same religion or your same identity um, or just, like, the same belief systems, like, you're not learning. You're not expanding. You're not growing. And, um, yeah, that's really, like, whenever I hang out with you, I am so, I leave so hopeful and so rejuvenated for, like, just the future of Swana and the future of female relationships, too, and, like, sisterhood and women, yeah. like, really standing up for your sisters and it doesn't matter who where they're from or who they are it's like just leaning into the divine feminine and knowing that we are the ultimate vessels of god um <laughs> because of just everything we do and i think that matriarchs we really do carry so much of our culture and religion we really do yeah and like you see that in every religion like mother mary magdalene like just you know khadija like there's so many muslim women throughout Judaism. is i wanted to ask you actually is there a Jewish, like, biblical figure or person in your teachings that, that like, really inspires you? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Yeah. So, you know, one of the projects I worked on was researching, it was a project called Biblical Babes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it was, like, researching the stories of women in the Torah, mm. which was around 66 named women and different stories. So, yeah, I would write, I wrote a whole write-up about each one and their leadership qualities. I have a lot of really beautiful ones, but I have to go with Hannah as my favorite. Mm. Do you know the story of Hannah? If you start saying it, I might remember. She comes from the prophet section. Um, she was struggling with her fertility, and in biblical times, if a woman couldn't have a child, she her status was, you know, much lower. lower. Um, and she was struggling with her fertility, and at that time, it was also more controversial for, like, a woman to go to the temple and pray. But she just went to the temple and pray, and... Um, the priest that was there at the time, he saw her and he was like, what is this woman doing here praying? And he thought she was drunk, you know? So he was like, he thought she was crazy. So he keeps being like, you crazy woman, what are you doing here? Yeah. And she was just like, no, you don't understand. I'm praying to God 
And she made this vow to God that she was just like, if I receive a child, I will dedicate this child to God, which she ended up being blessed by God and having a child, which was Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And he does end up being dedicated to God. He becomes the prophet. Um, And he ends up ordaining all the different kings and... Um, yeah, but I just, I love that because like, yeah, like you. <laughs> I really, I mean, and, and also, you know, I teach a lot about Jewish prayer. Most of our Jewish prayer laws, we actually learn from Hannah, which I think is really beautiful because, you know, at that time she was seen as like this crazy drunk woman, but then actually we learn a lot of laws about yeah. prayer from her. Um, wow. so yeah. And, and obviously because I'm also very connected to prayer, but you know, there's many, 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 many other stories. Maybe that will be the next podcast. Yes, like biblical and our class. Stories. And our class, yes. And I think that's what's so beautiful about Judaism and Islam, just like the matriarchy. You know, Miriam is mentioned so many times. And, like, it's, like, I really do think... And, like, just knowing the Jewish culture, too, like, women, the fact that Judaism is with the mother. Yeah. Like, that is so powerful. I totally. love that, and it should be that way. <laughs> I might get in trouble for saying that, yeah. but it is. I have a friend who has a Jewish mother and a Muslim father. And so people are like, what What? What are you? Like, And she doesn't, she's, she's like, like I'm, I'm a Jewish Muslim. And like, <laughs> that, that blows people's minds. Like, they are so upset by that. They're like, yeah. well, if the child, if the father is Muslim, the child is Muslim. But she's like, but my mother is Jewish. And I just live for, th- I live for shit. Yeah. I'm like, yes, like be a contradiction. Totally. I love that. You might appreciate this because sometimes I, th- I joke that my Muslim name is Hajar. Yes. Because sometimes when Hajar. people say Hadar, <laughs> yeah, they hear Hajar. Yeah. Uh, but I also very much relate to Hagar and her story as well. Yeah. Um, Dahlia, if people oh. want to follow you or look up your work or hire you as a consultant, <laughs> how should they find out about you? Yes, so I am on Instagram, I am on LinkedIn, and I'm also currently creating, I'm building my website right now, so things can be a lot more streamlined and just like visible and available. Over the years, people kind of just reach out to me with random projects, and it made me realize like I really need to have my own website. So that's a summer project I'm really excited about, and um, yeah, other than that, just LinkedIn or Instagram, and and stay tuned for our class. Yes, and we're going to teach our Islamophobia anti-Semitism class. It's going to be so exciting. Yeah, thank you so much, Dahlia, <laughs> for being on my podcast. And really, more specifically, for being part of Hadar's Web, my relational sphere, and, and just being my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly, it's such an honor to know you and to, to be your friend. You've added so much to my life, and you're someone that I can wholeheartedly trust and uh, yeah, I really respect and love you a lot. I love you too, Katie. Hi. Of course. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm in your home. <laughs> Anytime. My home is your home, Habibti. <laughs> okay. We did it. Uh-oh. Oh, no.